Good morning, everyone. The passage that um, we'll be reading today is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 41. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a, loud, suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask another, one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to, to this day. 
But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, please have the passage in front of you and there's an outline in there if you'd like to follow along just to know where we are. Isn't it providential that we're opening up this passage on Pentecost today? Uh, at, at Pentecost, as Christians, we remember the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but for Jewish people, Pentecost was already a festival, a major harvest festival that took place about 50 days after the Passover, hence uh, Pente, which comes from the, uh, Pentecost, which comes from the Greek word meaning 50th. Its Hebrew name is Shavuot, which means weeks, so-called because it's seven weeks and one day after Passover. And during this festival, uh, Jewish people brought the first fruits of their grain to the temple as offerings to God in thanksgiving. Uh, Pentecost or Shavuot also came to commemorate the giving of the law to the gathered nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. Uh, last week, uh, Natalie preached uh, on Christ's ascension to the Father's right hand, his exaltation to the place of universal authority at the right hand of God. Uh, Jesus knew this was happening. He knew that he would be leaving. And so he prepared his followers and he commanded them to continue his mission, to preach the gospel, to preach the good news of the coming kingdom of God in word and in deed, to preach that Jesus was the Messiah and Lord of all, to preach that God's long-awaited reign of righteousness, of justice, of love, of mercy, of salvation through the forgiveness of sins had come through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. From Luke chapter 24, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, 
beginning at Jerusalem. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses, my messengers, my instruments. How? How could these unknown, unschooled, fearful men and women from the most obscure corner of the Roman Empire possibly do that? Well, not by any human means, only by supernatural means. And that's what Jesus promised. He promised to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, his presence to work in hearts and minds, to give them the power to preach the gospel, to show the world that Jesus is Messiah and Lord. And what happened at Pentecost over 2,000 years ago is a fulfilment of Jesus' promise. Well, Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire are gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost festival, and so were the disciples. Uh, It says they were all gathered in one place. They probably refers uh, to the 120 followers of Jesus uh, that are referred to in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, not just the 12. And as the disciples were gathered together, uh, suddenly a violent rushing wind comes and tongues of fire rested upon each of them. They were physical signs and manifestations of the Holy Spirit of God. And then suddenly the the disciples are empowered to speak openly, boldly, in languages they had no right to know. And this is a miracle of speaking, different languages, not a miracle of hearing. And Jews from all over the Roman Empire can hear their own language being spoken. Now these people, they would have all probably known the common language of the empire, Greek, But this miracle enables people to hear the gospel in their own heart language. It's so powerful when people hear the word of God in their own language. It's why Bible translation, mission work is so important. But it's crazy what's happening. And so people are freaking out, what is going on? Well, there's one obvious answer. These guys are full of it. Wine, that is. Well, you can see why they think that, but the apostle Peter stands up and tells them what's really going on. From verse 14, 15. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. They're not drunk. He's not saying it's because they're good Jewish people. That's why they're not drunk. It's because it's too early. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And that's what's happening right here. The spirit poured out. God's servants, the disciples, men and women declaring the word of God, prophesying. Just as an aside, prophecy in the scriptures isn't just about telling the future. It's about declaring the word of God, bringing God's message to the people, 
declaring the truth about Jesus. And that's what we still do in our life together. That's what we do when we preach, when we get together in our small groups. That's what's happening here. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. That's what's happening. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled right before their very eyes. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, marks the beginning of the last days. Not the end of the world, the, the apocalypse, but God's promised end time, salvation. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11? As a judgment on people, uh, humanity's languages were confused. They were scattered. Pentecost is a reversal of that event. Just as that event divided people and languages, so now Pentecost brings people together, the nations together, to form one new people of God. It's God's salvation now, not judgment. Notice also Joel refers to the Lord there in verse 21. The one, who, the one whose name on you, you call on to be saved. You call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Who do you think that Joel originally meant? We well, meant God, Yahweh, right? The God of the Israelites. But who does Peter says, uh, say this Lord is? Jesus. Jesus is Israel's Messiah, but not only that, he's also the Lord of Joel too. He's the one pouring out the Spirit. And now he's the one you call on for salvation. You see, Jesus is not just a man. He's not even just divine. He's God the Son. He's one with Yahweh. He's God himself. That's what Peter is saying. And because that's who Jesus is, he deserves all our loyalty, all our love, all our obedience and all our worship. Well, in the rest of his sermon, Peter proves his claim that Jesus, verse 36, is both Lord and Messiah. From verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. You see, this isn't the first this event isn't the first miracle of Jesus that they've seen. Jesus had cast out demons. He'd uh, uh, healed the sick. He'd raised the dead. Yeah, these were signs, you see, foretold in the Old Testament of the Messiah, God's inbreaking kingdom, what it would be like, what God would do through his Messiah. These signs, therefore, served as evidence of who Jesus was. And many in that crowd saw it with their own eyes. We view the eyes, or we view Jesus' miracles through the eyes of Scripture, right? But it's not just the Gospels that testify to Jesus' miracles. Other historians as well, here's one, a Jewish historian Josephus, Jewish, not a Christian, wrote that Jesus did startling deeds. He had a reputation for startling deeds. The Talmud, which uh, was a Jewish exposition of the law, again, not Christian, hostile to Christianity, written in the second century, records that Jesus was a wonder worker. 
Arcelsus was a second century anti-Christian intellectual Greek. He refers to Jesus' reputation for having magical powers. Jesus was a man accredited by God through miracles, through wonders, through signs. And through them, God testified about who Jesus was. This is uh, Peter's first argument to prove that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. More evidence, verse 23. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now we know what God thought of Jesus, but the Jewish and Roman leadership, they didn't agree. And said they saw Jesus as a political threat and they killed him. Again, Jesus' death is attested to outside of the New Testament. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote this in the early second century. Christus, from whom the name uh, Christians had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. It's a fleeting illusion reference. Death isn't really a very convincing argument for messiahship, is it? For universal lordship. It's not something that you put on your CV if you were applying for that job. I failed and was killed. And so as far as the Romans and the Jews were concerned, Jesus' death was the end of the matter. However, paradoxically, it was further evidence of who Jesus was. Because although Jesus' death was the work of uh, sinful men, it was also God's plan, his set purpose. This is what the prophet Isaiah wrote about Jesus' death. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. God had a purpose. Jesus' death was not a divine whoops. Out of love, he was sent by the Father. Out of love, Jesus willingly went to the cross for the forgiveness of sins and for the salvation of the world. So as it turns out, Jesus' death wasn't a whoops, it was further evidence of his messiahship. A couple of things before we move on. How do we make sense of what happened at the cross? Were evil people responsible? Or was it God's plan? Well, the answer to those questions is yes. Yes, it was a wicked act for which the perpetrators are culpable. They're accountable. And yes, it was God's plan because God is so infinitely powerful, so wise, so kind that he's able to weave sin and suffering for our good and for his glory. He did it at the cross. And he can do the same in our own lives. Uh, One other thing before we move on. Some people doubt that the events of the cross happened altogether, right? Have you ever met someone like that who says, like, it's all just made up? Well, the consensus opinion of the great majority of historians, however, including secular historians, is against them. Most conclude that Jesus existed and that he died on the cross. 
The question is, what do you make of those events? If you'd like to hear more on this, I uh, listened to a couple of podcasts that were very helpful. Uh, uh, by a, it's a podcast called The Rest is History, and they're done by two secular historians, Tom Holland and Dominique Sandbrook. They did two podcasts on this issue uh, late last year in December, and they're really very helpful, I think, to get a sense of what secular historians are saying about Jesus. Well, that brings us to Peter's next argument, his next piece of evidence about Jesus, the resurrection from verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You see, if Jesus was just a teacher or a social revolutionary or just another Jewish bandit, he would have stayed dead. But he wasn't. He was no ordinary man. He was the Christ, the Messiah, God's chosen king. He was the Holy One of God. Therefore, it was impossible, Peter says, for death to keep its grip on Jesus. And and Peter explains by quoting uh, what God said about the Christ through King David from Psalm 16, there in verse 26. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Well, was King David talking about himself? Was he the Holy One? I ride through the cemetery just up the road each day, uh, just up the road from St. Jude's. You know the one I'm talking about, that big one? Uh, Near the south entrance is a separate garden. It's tranquil, it's, it's well tended. And in it are the graves of various prime ministers. There's one there, John Gorton, there's Robert Menzies, there's Malcolm Fraser, there's Harold Holt, although obviously the body isn't there. Do you know the, the garden I'm talking about? Have you seen it before? Well, if that garden was back in Jerusalem, then you'd see one grave with a name on it saying King David. When King David composed the 16th Psalm, he wasn't talking about himself. He's not the Holy One. He's dead and buried. He was talking about Jesus. He wasn't abandoned to the grave. His body didn't see decay. He was raised to life. And Peter and the disciples knew it because, verse 32, they saw it with their own eyes. So Peter can say with complete certainty that Jesus is the promised Christ. And the resurrection is the key. The resurrection is so prominent uh, and so central to the apostles' preaching in the book of Acts because it's the definitive proof that Jesus is who he said he is. Maybe there's another explanation, another reason why the authorities couldn't find the body. You see, like, if they could find the body, they could have ended Christianity right there. Here's the body of your Christ. But they couldn't. Maybe the disciples took the body, they hid the body in some great conspiracy to create a new religion. Is that likely? Create a religion where you suffer, where you get persecuted, where you get killed? No thank you. Give me prosperity any day. 
It's hard to believe so many people would willingly die for something they knew was a big, fat lie. Now, a better explanation is that Peter and the other disciples saw Jesus alive. And so he knows absolutely that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 33, the final evidence of Peter's claims. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Again, Peter quotes David from Psalm 110. David didn't ascend to heaven, Jesus did. Not only has God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated Jesus at uh, his right hand, the ultimate place of power, of authority, of glory. Now Jesus shares his father's, he shares his heavenly rule. He's the Messiah, he is the Lord of everyone and everything, Lord of the universe. That's another bold claim. Where's the proof? Well, they saw it, didn't they? The violent rushing wind, the tongues of fire, the speaking in tongues, the growing conviction in their hearts. That was proof of the spirit that God had poured out by Jesus. And we still see that proof today. Churches all over the world, people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity began as a marginalised sect in the backwater of the Roman Empire. Its founder was executed, its followers were killed. Yet here we are, against all logic, against all reason, against all hope, the gospel continued to spread. And it did because Jesus sent the Spirit. We're the proof of that first Pentecost. St. Jude's is the proof that verse 36, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostle, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do then in response? What shall we do in response to this message, this message, which is the gospel, right? This is what it is. That's the question those who've been cut to the heart, who've been moved and convicted by the Holy Spirit ask. Well, the first thing to do is this, from verse 38. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. If you're here today and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been cut to the heart, you've been moved and convicted by the Holy Spirit of God that Jesus is Lord, that's what you should do. Repent. Turn from a life apart from God and turn and trust toward Jesus, the Saviour, the Lord. Call on his name for forgiveness and salvation, and at some point be baptised. That's what I did when I first heard this message from this passage 25 years ago. I can remember it vividly, I was sitting kind of back there, not this church, another church, but kind of over there, 
I heard this message from Acts 2 and I was convicted. I was cut to the heart, moved by the Holy Spirit. I knew that Jesus was Lord and the gospel was true and that night I became a Christian. If that's you, turn today. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're still not sure. If that's you, let me encourage you to keep investigating. Follow the track wherever it leads. If Peter's wrong, well, that's fine. Then none of it matters. But if he's right, what you've heard this morning is the most important thing in the world. Maybe you want to believe, but you're struggling with questions, with with doubts. Jesus met lots of people like that, and when he met them, he met them with compassion. He wants to help. So if you're struggling to believe, if you're struggling to have faith, ask the Holy Spirit for help. Ask him to help answer your questions to calm your doubts, to help you believe. Repent, that's the first thing to do. The second is for those who have already committed themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do we have the Holy Spirit? Yes, I hope the answer is yes. If you have the Holy Spirit, then preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus poured out his spirit at Pentecost to empower his followers to preach the gospel. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, there are three mistakes I think that Christians can make. The first is to neglect the work of the Spirit. But without the Spirit, there is no salvation, there's no transformation, there is no church, there is no coming kingdom of God. There is no Christianity. Ignoring the Holy Spirit is not an option. The second mistake Christians can make is to so focus on the Holy Spirit that we actually separate his work from the work of Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit has come to transform us into his likeness. He came to empower the apostles, to enable the church to testify to Jesus. The work of the Spirit is deeply connected to the work of Christ. And the third mistake is to focus on the Spirit's other work, his spiritual gifts, his transformative work, but minimise his role in helping us to testify to Jesus. The Spirit has been sent by Christ to empower his disciples to preach Christ, to enable people to return to him. So if we have the Spirit of God, which we do, then preach Christ. Depending on our gifts and our role, it might look different in each of our lives. For some, you will be an evangelist. Praise God. For others, you'll be a missionary. Praise God. But regardless, praise God, all of us are called to answer for our faith. We're all called to walk towards others in our own way as our circumstances allow, according to the situations that God has placed us in. And when you're anxious, and you're not sure, remember the Holy Spirit is in you. When you face hostility and opposition, remember the Holy Spirit is with you. 
We have the Holy Spirit. So preach the gospel and finally pray for the gospel. From verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Uh, I said earlier that Pentecost came to commemorate the giving of the law. Well, after God gave the law, Moses came down from the mountain and what did he see? People engaged in idol worship, worshipping a golden cow. And they were judged. From Exodus 32, verse 28. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day, tragically, about 3,000 of the people died. 3,000 people. It's an interesting detail, isn't it? Actually, I think it's a deliberate parallel. Because of sin, God's giving of the law ultimately leads to judgment and death. But at Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit, it leads to life and salvation. The Spirit has come. These are the last days. And now is not the time for judgment. Now is the time for salvation. Yes, God judges, but his nature is to have mercy. He wants to save. So St. Jude's pray big prayers for the gospel. Pray big prayers for his saving work in our community, in our city, and in our world. 3,000 people were saved. Is it extraordinary? Yes. Is it unrepeatable? No. God's doing his work all over the world, through history. Why not here? Why not here? Our God is the God of this city, the God of this world. So have a big vision and pray big prayers in the name of Jesus who is Lord and Christ. Let's pray now. Loving Father God, we thank you for your mercy to us in sending your spirit, that first Pentecost. God, if there are any people today who are ready to turn to you, prompt them. If there are any who are doubting, give them strength. As your people, as your spirit-empowered people, help us to pray and help us to preach the gospel. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.